Oh, I thought, gonna, I thought you were going to start. No, I'm just saying, like, we don't even know how to start anymore. It's been so oh, long since we've done a show together. Where have it's you been? been? It's been a little busy. Yeah? Got some things going on. Been a PhD student? Been a PhD student and uh, working a little bit clinically as well. And something that I wanted to ask you about and talk about because I know it's an expertise of yours and something you studied in your own PhD is, uh, what's the deal with Easton? ha. <laughs> <laughs> Is that kind of like in our field saying, what's the deal, like in the world, being like, what's the deal with, like, um, abortion? Yeah. Is it like that deep these days still? I, I hope not. You know, I feel like, though, when you get a room full of speech pathologists <laughs> and you bring up Easton, you get a similar feeling of divide. Yeah. Where some people are raising their hands in the air and some people are rolling their eyes and some people are shaking their heads. Like, and some people are like, secretly, I do Easton, but I don't want anybody to know. <laughs> Please don't ask me any questions. I know, I know. I don't want to lie to you. <laughs> <laughs> yes, there is that. So what's your, what's your, do you have a, I'm going to treat you like I treat the clinicians who ask me that awesome. at the end of the talk. Can't and they wait. say, and they say um, so what are your thoughts on Easton? And I always feel like, I'm not sure how to answer that. Do you want me to tell you what to do? Do you want me to confirm your suspicions? Do you want me to refute them? So I'm going to ask you to ask me a specific question. So what about Easton? <laughs> I'm just kidding. Yeah, so I think what's interesting about Easton is we know people are using it. We know it's out there. There are devices. There are companies that are marketing it. And I think one of the main questions that clinicians have is when do I use it? what patients are most appropriate, what physiology is most appropriate. Mm -hmm. Or should I use it? Should I use it? Should I not? Is it safe? What settings? Mm -hmm. um, so I guess, you know, one of my main questions is if, if you're going down the road of deciding if you're going to use eSTEM or not, what's the first question you ask yourself on a clinical decision making process. Mm -hmm. Well, I think if anyone's going down the road of should they use Easton, they should certainly be reading to see what it even is, mm -hmm. right? How can you know if you should use something if you don't know what it is? If you've never seen a hammer, you don't, their first question is, should I use this? It's, what is this, right? Um, and along those lines, I do have a hammer analogy later and you know what it's going to be. But um, I will say the first thing is to understand what Eastim even does. Mm -hmm. Some people are baffled to this day to find that Eastim actually doesn't just stimulate the muscles, but also it impacts the skin that we, you know, the cutaneous afferent. So what the skin on your neck. Skin? Well, the skin on your neck gets the most stimulation. Mm -hmm. So the way Easton works is the electrodes or the stickers that are on your neck, this is with surface electrical stimulation, not to be confused with what's called percutaneous or indwelling. That's a needle that goes into the muscle. We're not talking about that. We're talking about putting a sticker on your neck, something like EMG or EKG. And the issue is that a current goes from one electrode to another. But the principles of ESTEM are that with surface electrical stimulation, whatever tissues are closest to the electrodes gets the most stimulation. And when you put stickers on your skin, uh, guess what? 
the skin gets the most stimulation, followed by anything that's deeper. So the strength of e-stim goes from superficial to deep. So the farther away the muscles are, the less stimulation or the less current is running through them. So that's the principle to know. So there are situations where people try e-stim for the first time, they're like, whoa, <laughs> right? Yeah. Um, and, you know, as part of the CTDM course, we have hands-on e-STEM for a reason because there are people who are trying to figure out what it does, how does it feel, do I want to use this on my patients? Um, and one thing to do is try it on. You know what I mean? The same yeah. way we all had to drink, oh, I don't know if we all did, maybe I was the only one, but, you know, some drink of us had to drink, liquids. yeah, drink thick and liquids. Right. Um, maybe even drink barium or something like that, depending on what class you're on, to say, what, what are you putting your patients through? So I would say that's something people need to remember, that you can actually stimulate the skin and you don't have to turn it up high, you can actually just get a tingling sensation, mm -hmm. right? Um, and the stronger it is, the deeper the current. That's right. a principle people should understand. Right. And placements. Ah, placements. <laughs> it is the eternal question. It's like location, 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 right? Yeah. Um, and there's something really interesting about that is, um, can I give you the, do we want to talk specific placements or do we want to like talk because then I'm going to tell you what your question is right? <laughs> I okay we can get to this later but we want I want at some point for us to talk about the controversy surrounding Eastim yeah. and why it's even why is it even like asking somebody about some real controversial topic you know right. it's almost like Republican Democrat like right. do you do Eastim or don't you it determines whether or not we can be colleagues yeah exactly. you know um, but I have had people come up to me and go I don't even understand how anyone does that and other people are like I don't understand why they won't give it a chance and I'm always like the mediator like one I'm not the arbiter Right. Mm -hmm. um, but I'm also wondering why we don't have the same fights over chin tucks. I've seen chin tucks do some pretty darn bad stuff. Absolutely, you know I mean? yeah. Well, when so. you get devices involved and you're using a, you know, an apparatus that is providing stimulation, people are afraid of the unknown. Yeah. I think sometimes, but yeah. people also love the idea of manipulating manipulating yes. and having a device and having something that you can measure something yes. dose so, that you can dose it you can say how mm -hmm. high or how low you can't really do that as well with like an effortful you don't know how strong they're doing right. it um, but let me answer your question about placement because I think it's an important one mm -hmm. um, part of my dissertation which was prompted by my dissertation advisor Christy Ludlow at the NIH was to um, do a study on ESTEM and Part of the reason is, and this goes into the controversy, but I'll just say briefly that a company came to present it to the NIH, and um, the folks in the room, the scientists in the room, basically challenged every single notion that they presented. And as we were walking out into the hallway, um, we had a, um, Christy goes, this would be a great dissertation topic for you. I'm like, hell yeah, and I just ran with it. <laughs> so essentially, part of the big issue that we had is they were saying, and we, Christy and I went to a, um, one of the workshops for training to make sure we can get you know, certified or whatever to use a device. And one thing that we noticed is that in the manual, and I understand it still says this in the manual, um, that if you put electrodes below the hyoid, so on the anterior neck, that you will get significant elevation. And there's this particular placement that you can use to get the most amount of elevation. So they were talking about hyoid elevation or laryngeal elevation? High laryngeal elevation, but primarily, I think, maybe, it, I don't know if it's at high laryngeal elevation or just laryngeal. But the but complex is going to The complex elevate. is going to go on up okay. and not down. Mm -hmm. And so, unfortunately, Christy sounds and I were, good. Yeah, sounds about right. Um, <laughs> Christy and I were the hecklers in the back saying, but anatomy 
doesn't work that way. You know what I mean? Right. It's it's just not possible. I mean, if you put e-stim on your bicep and it's going to contract your bicep, it doesn't make your fist go away from your shoulder. It makes your fist go toward your shoulder because it just activates what that muscle already does. It doesn't make the muscle do anything that it doesn't already do. It just forces a contraction. That's what e-stim does, okay? So if the muscles between the hyoid bone and the sternum or between the thyroid cartilage and the sternum cause approximation of the hyoid and the sternum, not levitation, meaning it's not bringing the sternum to the hyoid, it's bringing the hyoid down to the sternum, right? <laughs> that would be some it's, simulation. Oh my gosh, do you know how much money I'm making if I can make people levitate? <laughs> Hold up right now, maybe I need to change my direction. But anyway, if that's the case, why on earth would that happen? The muscles that elevate the larynx primarily are longitudinal pharyngeal muscles. Right. There is the thyrohyoid, yes, that approximates the hyoid and the larynx. But if the hyoid is not also going up, it doesn't matter. Right. If the hyoid's also coming down, the larynx is not going to go and oppose it and cross paths with it and be like, see a hyoid, you might be going down, but I'm going on up like the Jeffersons. Like, it doesn't happen that way. <laughs> so right? I'm picturing you in the back of the room with all of that circling through your brain. Um, and you were heckling in the back, so it's well, really surprising to me. Oh, heckling's a little strong. <laughs> shock, I, I, I take that back. I, shock I value that. is zero. <laughs> <laughs> well, I was questioning. Questioning. I didn't Which is what we love yeah. to do as mm -hmm. researchers is question yes. things. And I was a new researcher, and I, I had a few questions. I wasn't even a researcher then. I was <laughs> so a, you can even pull the naive card. You can yeah, pull the naive card. Exactly. That's my card. <laughs> yes, and you pull it very well. I was, I was a wannabe researcher, and yes. I had some questions. So essentially, what we decided is, the, the, that the study would be about um, putting electrodes in various placements below the hyoid bone, above the hyoid bone. And we did 10 different placements in one of these studies. And we found that any placement where there was an electrode below the hyoid bone, whether it was one electrode or two electrodes, even if there was also an electrode above the hyoid bone, caused significant hyoid bone and laryngeal descent at rest. So I feel like you, you need to say that yep, again. I will. Say it again. If any placement was below the highway bone, whether it was two electrodes or four electrodes, and even if there was also an electrode above the highway bone, when we put when we turned the east on and you were sitting at rest, it caused significant descent of the highway and larynx. And we actually have a video clip that I've been floating around. I have a YouTube link I can add to this mm. showing stim at rest. Yeah. Now, what happens during a swallow? Well. If you load the hyoid and larynx, which is essentially what Easton does, mm -hmm. and you have to swallow against that resistance, do you think you'll get the same peak elevation of the hyoid or the larynx? No. No, you don't. And in fact, that's what we find, that right. in that study, that healthy volunteers who have every capacity to garner the strength to oppose it could not oppose Easton. Mm -hmm. Now, that doesn't mean that Easton is bad. Right. Right. Because we put it on the max to get the max lowering. Mm -hmm. And what we have found in other studies is that was one swallow. But when we have people swallow over several swallows, people do over time, like 10 to 20 swallows, gradually overcome the effect of e-stem. So they can swallow hard over several studies, over several swallows to get close to their baseline. They never quite get all the way to their baseline like they're non-stimulated swallows, right. but they can get close. So what happens when you take the stem off with these patients? What do you mean? So if they're 
gradually overcoming mm-hmm. the effect of the perturbation, you take the perturbation completely off. How does that transfer to natural swallows? Yeah, so basically, if you're a person who's had a stroke or something, what happens is they think that stimulation is coming. They have every reason to believe that, you know, the 20th of 21st stimulated swallow is going to have stimulation, just like swallow 1 through 20 did, but you'd suddenly take it off. Then what they do is they swallow really hard in anticipation of needing to overcome the effect of the stimulation, and their hyolaryngeal peaks overshoot their baseline. Mm-hmm. So they swallow with even more laryngeal and hyoid elevation than they did before in their non-stimulated swallows. Mm-hmm. And so that's what we call after effects. Yeah. And that's basically they were learning over time that this is how I overcome this what we call perturbation, which is e-stim. And if you trick them, then they swallow really hard. You sort of catch them red-handed out there planning a really hard swallow, and then they perform really well. Right, interesting. So what about when you're placing electrodes just above the hyoid bone? Are there people out there, I would imagine, because there's really Mm, no standard. That's a good question. There's no standard of what you do with e-stim. free to use this however they want. So, you know, what about when the electrodes are just on the suprahyoid muscles? Yeah, and that's a good thought. It's like, okay, fine, I'm not one who wants to load the larynx with the goal of having people swallow hard over time, right? right? Although there is a study indicating, can I just say, on Mm -hmm. below the hyoid bone, it's by Park in 2009, I believe, that when healthy people swallow for two weeks training at home doing effortfuls with electrical stimulation behind below the hyoid bone meaning it's resisting they have to swallow really hard mm-hmm. versus a group that just does effortfuls without e-stim the group that does effortfuls plus e-stim for two weeks comes back and you find that they have higher peak hyoid elevation okay so it suggests that you can actually increase hyoid elevation if you're trained to swallow hard and resist right. the stem. Because that's what I was wondering before is, well, is it just the effortful swallow when they take the stem off that's causing those? While it is just an effortful swallow, the difference is that an effortful swallow doesn't target the larynx necessarily. Right. right. But I think what people might do is, with an effortful, you don't know what they're squeezing hard. You just hope the bolus clears more. Like maybe the tongue, this guy's doing more tongue, that guy's mm-hmm. doing more pharynx. But this forces you to fight something in particular that you can feel, right? right? So maybe it helps them to target an effortful. Mm-hmm. So that's one thought. But anyway, above the hyoid bone, the thought is, well, look, I don't want to pull my patient's larynx down. I actually want to facilitate upward anterior movement. And we know in that submental region are muscles that are responsible for bringing the hyoid bone up and the larynx up. Mm-hmm. Sorry, the hyoid bone up and forward, right? Yes. not the larynx. Right. Um, and so... What we have found, so I had a placement in that particular study that had four electrodes mm-hmm. on the submental region. And we found that we did not have significant elevation, but we were very close to having significant anterior movement. Mm-hmm. So it was 0.06, and you know, a p value that's important is 0.05. So if we had five more people, it probably <laughs> would have been statistically right. significant, but is it clinically significant? Because there is a difference between clinical significance right. and statistical significance. So sure, that study didn't show it, or it showed that it only had a couple millimeters, but that two millimeters is everything for my patient, for all you know. Right. So, um, but the issue is that you, in, no matter which one you're doing, it still follows the same rule. You, Eastim is not u- unique in any way. Regardless of what treatment you pick, 
it needs to target some pathophysiology. Okay. Maybe it's targeting by facilitating it. Like this is a pathophysiology. This pa patient is incapable of being challenged. It is too risky. Mm -hmm. I want to facilitate and make it easier. Okay. Mm -hmm. Or this is the pathophysiology. I want to try a true rehab approach, approach and challenge them to make it harder. Right. And over time, they learn to do this task better. Yeah. So the point is, whether you use e-stim or not, the big, I'll tell you my big problem, is that people did not realize that understanding what muscles they were stimulating was needed. Because right. nobody was heckling them that, but us. Right. And that's a problem. Well, and I'm going to go out on a limb and say... Yes, eSTEM does get a little bit of a bad rap, I think. Well, the controversy that that exists. And like you said before, there's not a major controversy surrounding a Masako. Yeah. People are not up. When you walk into a room and scream Masako, you don't get a complete divide in the room of Wait, people pro and con. Are people walking into the room screaming Masako? Because I want to be in that room. Right? I know. I feel like Masako just, you know, is. There's uh, some poor guy whose last name is Masako. It's like the like, independent why are party. Nobody has, name? like, whatever. But. It really, I mean, in the same venue, if you're doing a Masako and targeting a pathophysiology that's not impaired or giving a Masako with no idea what's impaired in the swallow mm -hmm. in the first place because mm -hmm. you haven't visualized the swallow, you haven't done instrumentation, is that really any different than slapping a couple of electrodes on a patient without targeting a specific physiology or knowing what's wrong with the swallow. I, I don't think there's much of a difference, to be honest. There isn't. I think the difference potentially is that there's more fear about eSTEM right. because, you know, it's an electronic device that delivers a current. and But these things are FDA approved. FDA approved does not mean it's effective. Otherwise, right. we would all have on that ab device that we sit at our desk <laughs> and it stimulates our abs and we all come out with six packs at 5 p.m. Even right. though we didn't start out, think, we started out with a keg at 9 a.m. Well, I think that's something that's really important to clarify because I hear the language sometimes of, well, it's FDA approved. Yeah. Which I hear it's, people say. It's probably say, not going to kill you is what that means, but it might not work. Exactly. That's not the same as saying, well, there's research to support that yeah. if you use eSTEM in this mm -hmm. way, mm -hmm. they're very, very different things. And I you think know it's what else is FDA approved? Wrinkle cream. <laughs> <laughs> so let's just talk about that. I'm not saying eSTEM is wrinkle cream. Calm down. <laughs> I'm just saying. <laughs> We should be asking questions, thus the term heckling. So when I say no one else was heckling but us, people were vigorously writing down that e-stim on muscles that pull the highway down would actually do the opposite and pull it up. That to me is illogical. That's an alternative fact. It's an alternative fact. <laughs> That's exactly what it is. Yeah. You could frame it as such. Yes, exactly. So... So I think that, you know, the other piece of eSTEM is there's continuous stimulation, mm -hmm. there's intermittent stimulation, there's different ways that the electrodes can deliver the stimulation. Mm -hmm. So how do we consider that in treatment planning? Yeah, so the device determines for you what it's going to be. This is what really bothers me, and I'm just going to put this out there, <laughs> shocker, going to float this one. I really don't like that when I talk to my PT colleagues, you go to their closet, which I have borrowed devices from them, sorry guys, um, I find that they have a button for on and off. 
Okay. <laughs> Wait, are they allowed to make their own decisions? They are allowed to make their own decisions about the thumb and the button. Maybe it's because they have a doctorate. They're a DPT. Nope. And we're it's still... always been that way. <laughs> no, yeah. It's always been that way. I yeah. wish that was the case. Right. Basically, that means when they want to stim, they press a button and they get the person gets stim. When they want it off, they press a button and the stim goes off. Stim autonomy. Stim autonomy. However, SLPs don't have that, and that's because there are devices that have set protocols. Why is that? Well, it has to do with our field and the unfortunate need for us to have recipes and protocols over um, ways of thinking and working through a problem. We don't have problem-based approaches. Mm -hmm. We have step one through 10 approaches, cookbook. And I suspect that there was some good sense in doing this in the beginning. It's like, wow, no one's ever used this before. They're gonna wanna know exactly what to do. My thought is we are all, as speech pathologists, smart enough where if you give us the principles of how someone works, something works, and give us the physiology and help us to work through the pathophysiologies, that we might come up with the decision about, you know what, this patient in front of me needs this, that patient over there needs that, my three o'clock patient needs that, as opposed to this device turns on for this amount of time and off for this amount of time, and everybody's getting thrown into that basket. Right. So in the same way we don't give everyone two-second Mendelssohn's because that's what we were told in school, we don't give everyone the exact number of uh, seconds of stimulation because that's what the device says. Right. But the problem is, to be fair, if I say, hey, let's think through this, people go at the end, um, so how should I use it? I'm like, yeah, I just told you how it works. So I'm worried that that's one big problem with eSTEM is that it encourages this protocol mentality and not let's use this as an opportunity to explore what we thought we knew about swallowing and increase that knowledge. Right, right. You know, I think as speech pathologists, we obviously have a toolbox, right, of all the tools that we use, whether it's traditional therapy, whether it's device-driven. And, you know, I think this applies to not just eSIM, but it applies to everything, is before you even stick your hand into that toolbox, you should know what impairment you're trying to trigger so it's not going oh I just I love eSIM oh I love the Masako oh I love the Shakir exercise because mm-hmm. people have their things that they just love and they want to use on yeah. every patient but it's like you there should be a screening process before you're allowed to put your hand <laughs> in the toolbox where you have to declare what the physiology Ooh, is that you're I targeting have a, I have a 90s analogy that you're gonna love and you know what I love about this it brings you back to the analogy I said I was gonna talk about hammer the hammer mm-hmm. can't touch this yeah, no, totally, <laughs> totally. It's just like, this is a hammer and you can't touch this. Oh my gosh, do you see what I did there, people? As an MC. No, okay. it got really meta. Okay, Whew. I know. Mind blown. Mind blown. Um, no, but right, I mean, before you reach that toolbox, it's like, I'm sorry, what are you using that for? And thus, that all brings us to the controversy. Yes. Okay, so we have a few things we've talked about. The protocol-driven mentality, mm-hmm. the fact that once you have this device, everyone needs it. Right. If once you have a hammer, everything's a nail. Mm-hmm. We've invested in this. We're said we're going to use it. And three, the the evidence at the time when this was released was not strong. Right. And people were like, I remember people fighting, saying, clinicians are going to go there and slap it on everyone they see and walk out of the room. I was like, calm down. Bring it down about three, four notches. You know, it's almost like if you have condoms in the bathroom, they're just going to run out and have sex. It's like if they wanted to have sex, they were going to find a condom, people. <laughs> oh, my gosh. But it's not like if you give them an everyone's getting stimulated, although that does jive well with the condom story. It really right? does. 
<laughs> it's late, folks. But um, the, the, and so that was a controversy. There was a, a presentation that happened in maybe more than one place, but there's one particular um, location that I'm thinking of. Um, it was Dysphagia Research Society, and I was not there. I only heard the legend of, of what happened. It was before my time. Um, and basically, the presentation happened about ESTEM, and apparently the people got skewered, not because ESTEM doesn't have potential, but because it was presented as a cure. And wow. by the time I did my dissertation, I would go online to read about the various types of ESTEM. And there would be certain websites where it'd say, cure dysphagia in big, bold letters. <laughs> and patients were coming to clinicians oh, saying, gosh. I want you to get me this device to cure my dysphagia. Right. And so sometimes the marketing goes wild. Yeah. And the, there's not enough evidence to support that level of claim. Right. And if you tend to be, oh, I'd say, perhaps um, a more protocol-driven clinician, you're like, okay, I pay this amount of money, I go to the course, I follow these steps, and then I write my notes. Right. And unfortunately, our patients demand more. I, ha I had to laugh at your don't touch this analogy, <laughs> bringing it back to MC Hammer, but, you know, I think a central theme in a lot of our podcast here is, you know, focusing on physiology and what are we treating? And I just have to laugh because, and I have to give a little bit of a shout out here. There's a lot of Facebook groups where, I mean, thousands and thousands of speech pathologists uh, belong to these groups and they post case studies and videos and what would you do? And I have a patient and what would, what should I treat? And it's, I think it's Katie Krings that I love that every single time, it's like she has a copy-paste function that the first comment that always goes up is, what's the physiology? And I just want to like preach every single time. And then you get a lot of, well, I, you know, yeah. I'm not really sure. And it's, what's the physiology? Yeah. It's the same question. You it's know, just, I got to know what I'm treating. You know what? I, I was talking to Rinky on the last podcast, and I said it's no different from people saying, should I use Tylenol? For what? what? <laughs> when? In your ear? Like, how were you planning on using it? You know what I mean? My contacts are dry. My contacts are dry. Should I use Tylenol? No. I can say no to that. It's like my head hurts. Should I use Tylenol? Perhaps. But there's a lot more work that's been going on in the field investigating this. Mm -hmm. um, I think you can probably talk about this better than I can with um, the research currently that's out there. Yeah. So one thing that I, speaking of Facebook groups, one thing I always hear is, so there's the question, anybody using eSTEM or I'm thinking about doing this one versus that one, any thoughts? And you have a number of things that are like, ooh, this one is short and sweet and only costs this much money. But then you also have ones that are like, okay, this course really explained this concept. But I'm going to tell you what we, but then a lot of people come and say, why would you use ESTEM? There's not enough evidence. And I'll say this, there are, count them, less than five studies on the friggin' sideline. Okay? <laughs> there are, like, probably less than, I'm sure, sure less than 10 studies on Masako. Right. There are definitely less than 20 studies on, like, you know, chin-up or something like that. Right. These are things that come without strings. There's no red tape surrounding them because Logaman said so in our class, right? right. They, it was in our table. People said, you do these things. But the truth is there, to my knowledge, are more studies on ESTEM than any other single treatment. I would agree with that. Yet, we still don't have 
all the answers we'd like to have. There are a couple reasons why. One is sometimes the study designs aren't set up to answer those questions. Mm -hmm. So they don't actually, they test things and their outcome variable are things like diet change. And the good Lord knows that that is the most subjective possible things. Two people with equal training and amazing swallowing training can look at the same series of floros and one kind of people like mechanical sauce, someone else is like honey thick. Right. So when that's your outcome variable, you don't actually understand what it does to the swallow. Right. Um, or other things like patient report or things like, um, you know, aspiration. But why did they aspirate? Like, why didn't they aspirate after? Like, right. what was the exact date? How did you analyze the data? There are so many questions. So while there are many more studies, they might not necessarily give us a long-term view. We still don't know what kind of swallowing pathophysiology you really should have for a certain e-stem placement to be effective. Right. So those are the kinds of targeted questions we need, but it's not researchers' job to answer the question to the patient immediately in front of you on that moment at that day. Right. It's not like, okay, Mr. Jones has this, let me see if there's a study about him. There isn't one, you are it. You are right. the researcher for that person in front of you. And if you're able to think through the principles of e-stem and that person's pathophysiology and put it together, Right. then I think that we are all doing a better job. Right. And I, there's no reason that you can't use physiologic rationales to support what you're doing with the patient. Of course. And I remember when I first started out clinically as a CFY, and every patient I got, I would go to the literature and be like, uh, patients with stroke that are three months out, that had a right <laughs> hemisphere stroke, that are, you know, you, you Google this like long history because you want the research study that has done every treatment on that exact patient population and it's disappointing. Yeah, at the end, your <laughs> search result is Now like, I have to think okay. for myself? Yes. Okay, so you've been asking me a lot of questions. Ooh, okay. And let's wrap this up by saying, um, if, I'll ask you the same question. If, okay. What's up with Eastem? Like, if you had a clinician colleague of yours who said, "I'm thinking about using using Eastem," how would you help them to make a decision? Um, I would direct them to swallowingsystemscore.com. They can find your email address, <laughs> and you will now get a slew of emails. No, um, it's the same way I answer the the question for any treatment. To be honest, is identifying the physiologic impairment that you see in an instrumental evaluation. And it's connecting the dots between, I think you do need to be familiar with the literature on what ESTIM does do and does not do. But I would say that about any treatment that you're mm -hmm. prescribing. What does it do, what does it not do, and what does it target? Mm -hmm. And connecting those dots. So I don't think that there is a right and a wrong answer that you can give to people to say, absolutely, you should use it with this, and absolutely, you should use it with that. It's patient dependent, it's, mm -hmm. um, it's physiology dependent, it's, you know, what the patient wants. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> so, you know, it's, it's, it's a lot of these things that I don't think that you can give a definitive answer with any treatment, but I do always encourage clinicians to connect those dots and yeah. to say, we're not techs, we, um, our job is to be very critical of evaluating physiology and pairing it with appropriate appropriate treatments and and that's what ideally we should be doing with every patient and you know if I was a patient that's what I would want for my speech pathologist so I think it's it's less 
focusing on the device and really focusing on Mm -hmm. critical thinking. It's a good thing that you said that because I think that we should close this by saying it is possible that the introduction of Easton to dysphagia management has been the best way. It's certainly been my sort of launch to the world of research, which I have been loving, but it has been the thing that has made us look in the mirror. Mm -hmm. When you realize that you have to, you can manipulate somebody else's airway, Mm -hmm. not ask them to do a maneuver, but you manipulate it with the touch of a button, you start to go, now hold on, let me think about this. Mm -hmm. And when people think about it that way, they might say, I have the power to make a lot of changes here potentially, let me make sure that I'm doing it with a good understanding of physiology. And if that's what it, if that's what it does for our field, it has done a lot. Yeah, absolutely. And I think you know every speech pathologist should reflect on a time where you've had a family member go through something medical. Mm-hmm. You know, and I reflect on my own when my when my dad had heart surgery. Thank God the cardiologist cardiologist didn't come to me and say, "Well, I just plug in a formula where he's." <laughs> 62 years old, he had um, this type of blockage, and therefore, I'm kind of a aortic bypass guy, so this is what he's going to get, because I've seen good outcomes with And this. you got your and, certification in it, so. and Exactly. <laughs> but no, they sit down with you and look at all the angles, and it's not, it's gray. Yeah. Gray's uncomfortable, but it's gray. Mm-hmm. And, you know, we make decisions based on each individual patient and what is physiologically wrong with them, not what's hot not what's comfortable, not what's, um, you know, out there and being talked about, but what's best for that patient's physiology. At that moment. At that moment. So individualized care is is important, and I think with all of these devices, we just have to keep that in mind, that we want to individualize it for our patient and really targeting what their physiologic impairment is. Hey, Leash, do you remember a year ago when we did our first down the hatch? That was a year ago. That was a year ago. Do you remember how nervous you were? <laughs> you were like, okay, where should I sit? How should I sound? And now you're all like leg up, chilling. Like, let me tell you about this Easton right quick. <laughs> I'm pretty sure the first time the hatch, I, we had to drink like a half a bottle we of wine. We did have a whole bunch of wine because we said we we're going to have wine with every with everything. We couldn't even publish the first one because we drank too much wine. We did, and I still have this bottle next to me as a reminder <laughs> never to drink at work again. I'm just playing. <laughs> but anyway, um, this has been a good year. I hope that the podcast has been something that's been useful to people and we are complete with we have completed one year thank you so much for listening guys and send us the topics that you think you'd like to hear about Um, anything that you think we should talk about next well maybe not everything but most things we think we can we did talk about possibly doing a part two of this and talking about EMST yeah um so, you know, if you have any questions or things that you'd like to know about EMST, um, send them our way. And hey, hopefully EMST we can address them. is expiratory muscle, muscle strength, strength training. training. Yeah, yeah. And even if you have questions about a previous podcast, like maybe we should do one on questions about previous podcasts. Yeah. <laughs> and we just go through and answer them. Um, anyway, um, you guys can get in touch with us anywhere on Facebook or on the SoundCloud messages. Email us and let us know what you think. All right. Thanks for listening.